Welcome to A World Where Living Works, stories of science and survival, bringing together our heads and our hearts to build a suicide-safer world. Talking openly about suicide is so important, but we also recognise that listening to this series may bring up some tough emotions. If so, please talk to a trusted family member, friend or local support service about how you are feeling. Visit livingworks.net and click on Find Safety for International Crisis Services. We are there to help you. This podcast is brought to you by Living Works, a network of local suicide first aid trainers in your community and communities around the world. Visit livingworks.net to find out how you can play your part in suicide prevention. You're listening to A World Where Living Works, and I'm your host, Kim Bordell. First of all, I'd like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the land, wherever you're listening today. I'd also like to acknowledge everyone out there who has been impacted by suicide, the pain it brings to our lives, and the desire to make positive change for all of us to live well. So today's episode is all about living well in the defence and military communities, and asking that all-important question, when it comes to suicide, how are we protecting the lives of those who protect ours? So I'll be talking today to Sergeant First Class Chris Allen, Suicide Prevention Program Manager for South Carolina Army National Guard. Welcome, Chris. Thank you for having me. Also with us today, we have Dr. Stephanie Hodson. Dr. Hodson is the National Manager of Open Arms and has been with Open Arms since 2016. She's a veteran herself, joining the Army in 1991 and serving for 23 years. Thanks for joining us, Steph. Thank you. Thanks for having me. So I thought what might be an interesting way to start is to tell us a bit more about you and your professional background and your organisation's focus on suicide prevention and mental wellbeing and just the why of where you are today in your work and focus on suicide prevention. So Steph, if we could start with you, tell us a bit more about yourself. Thanks for that. Um, I've been very fortunate to be involved in suicide prevention for about 15 years. So when I actually served in the Army, I worked in defence in our suicide prevention program, which was all about getting people ready to be able to deploy overseas, but also be aware of how to look after their mates, how to keep their mates safe, right from the recruit training to the time that they actually left the military. And it was quite a journey just over time, learning what we needed to do in order to try and keep our service personnel safe. Suicide in Australia is a major issue. We have nine people who die by suicide every single day, and we're just a small part of that society. So for us, it was all about how do we get to a point that people can safely say, hey, I need help, or do you need help? I've been lucky enough since I've left the military to actually come into an organisation. This was founded by our Vietnam veterans, but it's actually now for all veterans. And we look after current ex-serving and their families for life. So it's really nice to come from a military background into an organisation dedicated to actually looking after military families and serving members. But again, for us, it's about how do you actually make sure that We don't just provide clinical services, but how do we do the preventative work? How do we help people be in a place to actually look after their mates and ask the right questions? Great. Thank you, Steph. And Chris, a little bit about the National Guard and your work in the Army. Yeah, so I came in in 1988 uh, in active duty. 
And then I converted over to the National Guard in 2006. And then in 2010, I started working with the National Guard full-time employee. And then in 2016, I transferred over to the Suicide Prevention Office. And so since 2016, we've been you know, building on the work that we've already done for several years with Living Works, because whenever I was brought over, we'd already trained over 1,500 in assist. And then since then, our numbers have grown to over 2,000 in assist. And then we've also added uh, Safe Talk. We've also added Suicide to Hope and also START. So we have the full spectrum of suicide prevention services that we add to our ACE program, our Ask Care Escort, which is the Army Suicide Prevention Program. So we feel that we have a very full spectrum of services to offer our service members. We then take all of that training and we expand it to our partnerships. Living Works obviously is, is a, one of our main partnerships. We also partner with the Veterans Administration, uh, with the Office of Suicide Prevention, which falls under the Departmental Health in South Carolina with the active duty component and the reserve component, American Foundation for Suicide Prevention. Uh, so we have a very broad spectrum that we cover. You know, there's 5 million people in South Carolina and there's about 500,000 veterans in South Carolina. So we feel that through our training and through our partnerships is that we're casting a very large net throughout South Carolina to catch as many folks that have suicidal ideations as possible to get them then to the care that they need to help with their mental health. You know, we roughly have about 800 folks that die from South Carolina each year in South Carolina. Of those, about 150 of those are veterans. And so it's significantly impacting, you know, what's happening in South Carolina. So we, we're doing work with the hope that we can affect change in South Carolina and also nationwide. I mean, nationwide, you know, we have 45,000 that die by suicide each year. And of that, 7,000 are veterans. So we, you know, the veteran population is at much greater risk from dying by suicide than the average person. And so we are really trying to reach that audience and it's difficult, right? Because veterans don't really, for the most part, want to, to be bothered for the most part. You know, they keep to themselves. And so that puts them at a risk, you know, a higher risk, you know, being, you know, loners. And then we're trying to reach that population. So it's, it's, it's difficult sometimes. But that's why I'm doing the work that, that we're doing, you know, to get the word out as much as possible. Absolutely. So that's what I'm doing in a nutshell. Great. Thanks, Chris. And what about, you talked a little bit there about the sort of risk factors of veterans in terms of isolation, for example. With both active personnel and veterans, what are some of the environmental and occupational sort of risk factors that impact on people working in the military or who've previously worked in the military and defence? So what sort of things do we need to understand about people working in these roles and coming out of these positions? So typically what I'll do when we um, provide training, especially with assist, that's the one we do most often. I usually lead into that with, you know, going back to whenever they first came in the military and even to go back before that. So, you know, in the school system, when somebody, when a child gets sick in the school system, we send them to the school nurse, they're evaluated and they're treated and maybe even sent you know, back to the classroom or they're sent home. So we condition our children 
to seek care. When we go into the military, we're again indoctrinated in all branches, not just, you know, I'm in the army now, but just all branches, similar indoctrination. We are brought into the system. We are in a training environment and we're told, okay, over here is sick call where you can go get treated. At the same time, we tell them if you miss too many training hours, we're going to send you home. So that's basic training. That's when they first come in the military. And then they come out of basic training. And every time they go into a training environment or they go into a a mission environment, they're told the same thing. Here's the care. But if you miss too much of the mission or you miss too much of the training, then we have to either recycle you into training or take you off the mission. So where as children, we're indoctrinated to go seek care. In the military, we're actually, they don't say it right. They don't say, we don't want you to get care. But in your indoctrination, when you come into the military, that's what really we're telling you. There is care, but we don't want you to get care. So that leads into now we have a high rate of suicide. And now we're trying to reach active duty and veterans to say, we want you to get care. Even though we've indoctrinated you into not wanting to get care, now we want you to get care. Yeah, and so it's really hard to turn around the, the it's very, that sort of subtle training. Right. You're, you know, you're talking about 10, 20, 30 years of indoctrination that we're trying to combat against. So the biggest risk factor is the indoctrination that we do, whether it's subconscious or consciously to our servers, as far as help seeking behavior, right? So it's the behavior that we've indoctrinated into them. On top of that, the high rate of deployments that we've had over the last 10, 15 years throughout the world, right? Australia, America, the UK, throughout the world, we've asked a lot of our service members. They've sacrificed not only their lives, but their families, their relationships, right? So suicide is a relationship issue. And so when you predispose somebody to an environment that breaks down their relationship at home, and then you send them home from the many different deployments we've had around the world to a broken relationship, And now you're, in essence, breaking another relationship because they have this relationship with their unit that they built through the deployment. You're sending them home to a broken relationship. You're breaking the unit relationship. You're really putting them at greater danger of having thoughts of suicide. So it's not a secret. You know, a year after the deployment is the most dangerous part of a service member's life as far as suicide is concerned. And then the the first three years after they leave the military for good, for retirement, is a very dangerous part. So it's really all about relationships. You know, you're building relationships in the military, but then you either break them when you come back from deployment, and then your long-term relationships, your spouses, your boyfriends, girlfriends, your children, parents, even those relationships are put under a strain, you know, during this cycle of deployments that we've had over the years. You know, so here you are indoctrinating them to not seek care, and you're breaking all their protective factors, which is creating risk factors, then you put them into an environment that does not know, you know, civilian environment, that they do not know how to relate to a veteran. That kind of puts the relationship between the veteran and the civilian at a strained relationship. So they don't want to reach out to a civilian doctor for help because they don't understand. They don't really want to talk to even a veteran administration provider because maybe they don't understand. We could go on and on. I mean, so another risk factor 
you know, that we deal with on a, on a regular basis is the risky behavior. So whether it's alcohol or drugs or just the lifestyle in general, you know, not a healthy lifestyle where they may not be technically homeless, but they're constantly on the move, you know, moving from house to house or apartment to apartment or from one friend's couch to another friend's couch. So this constant movement does not lend itself to having a sense of security and stabilization with the veteran community. So if I had three risk factors, you know, it would be the predisposition to not seek care, the relationship and the instability of a veteran's life as a whole. Those are probably the three biggest things that um, that put veterans at risk. Thank you, Chris. That makes sense, especially thinking about how, in terms of help seeking, how someone can understand that experience that you've both worked through and people coming home and then trying to reach that understanding with other people. Steph, what, what are your thoughts on the main risk factors and help seeking behaviours when it comes to defence and military? Look, I completely agree with Chris in the sense that he's summing up around the, the you know, big three about our very much also the Australian experience. I think the difference for Australia is that we are a much smaller military and therefore I've made, I was telling him earlier that, you know, you could put the Australian military into the Pentagon <laughs> But being small allows you to be more connected and a little bit more agile. And what we actually find with our suicide rates in Australia is when you're serving, your your risk of suicide is significantly lower than the general community. But when you leave, it doubles. So we've been looking at, you know, what are the factors about when you're serving that are protective but you lose when you transition? And it goes exactly to what Chris was saying, the fact that while you're serving, you're in a big team environment. What we do know about Australians is, interestingly, they will seek help. So for about a decade now, or even more, 15 years, we've been doing, there's yearly suicide prevention training every year. So people know where to get help and they know that help is there and assist and um, safe talk has been a huge part of that training. What one of the barriers to seeking care, though, is the belief that I can do it myself, the belief that I should be able to do it myself, which goes exactly to what Chris was saying about that induction training. The fact that you are trained to cope in really difficult and extreme environments and then all of a sudden you find that you're in a situation where you're feeling you're not coping. So one of the hardest things in your own head is I should be able to cope with this and I should ask for help. Now, when people in the military They actually live really closely together. They're very connected. If someone doesn't turn up to work, people notice. If someone's having a bad day, people notice. Our trouble is when people transition out of the military or they come back from a deployment and have a long period of leave, what we do find is they're no longer as connected. So when they're not having a good day, their mate's not there to actually say, how are you going? So we find that a major risk factor is, you know, that loss of sense of team as people transition out or if they go from full-time service into reserve service. The other one is loss of meaning. You know, one of the best things you can do is serve your country. One of the best things you can do is, you know, when someone asks you, what do you do for a living? You know, I serve in the Defence Forces and people are interested in you and then all of a sudden you leave and your sense of self 
your sense of meaning, finding the right job afterwards that gives you that sense of meaning is really tough. And I think for the first couple of years, even myself, when I left, someone said to me, it'll take you two years to adjust. And I said, no way, you know. And two years later, I was having coffee with the same people saying, oh, my goodness, it was so hard. The first couple of years, readjusting to not being able to go back on base, not having the same sense of team, not having the same sense of purpose. As much as I have purpose, it's not the same as when you were serving. So loss of team, loss of meaning. And then the impact on family, the impact on family is absolutely huge. You know, you've been away for long periods of time and all of a sudden you're back full time in the family. It's not always quite the honeymoon you think it's going to be. And, and that puts lots of pressure on people. So, you know, for me, it is the, the loss of meaning, the loss of team and the family. Having said that, they're all things we can intervene on. They're all things that we can actually work on and being aware of how to ask is your mate doing okay, being aware of staying connected and being very aware that when someone's family is in crisis, they're, they're really at risk. These all things that we, through things like assistance, suicide prevention training, we can actually get confident to actually ask those questions to people. That's great. I love what you're saying about the strengths that you have when you're serving, thinking about those strengths like the teamwork and the adaptability and being agile and excellent coping skills and particularly dealing with really, really tough situations. What about the things that people see when you're on duty and when you're out on tours and how are people doing in terms of processing that information? And is it is it almost like you're walking in two worlds there between your military life and your home life? I actually think Chris will probably be able to add to this as well, but definitely I think it's one of the hardest things is that we send service personnel to do those tough jobs for us. But when you come back, you don't have a frame of reference always to talk about it. So you go back to your small country town and you're trying to talk about your experiences and they can't even conceptualise what you see. So your sense of isolation, we know that it's not lacking a network around you that puts you at risk. It's feeling connected to that network. So when you leave the military, when you're in the military, you've got other people with range of reference who can talk to you about your experiences and they get what you've been through. All of a sudden, you're living in a world where people can't actually understand that frame of reference. And you know, some of the things you've seen, they might think they can understand, but in fact, you end up feeling very isolated and disconnected from your community because what you've seen is not something that you know someone in a small country town in Australia would have seen. And that's a good thing. It's a really good thing that we live in countries where it is surprising and it's challenging for us to go overseas and see this tough stuff. But it does actually put these people slightly to one side and it's why our veteran community actually needs additional support and for us to have services. It's why I'm really proud to be part of an organisation like Veterans and Family Counselling Open Arms because of the fact that our Vietnam veterans really struggled. Ten years later, they fought for a service where they could get, and um, Chris mentioned this, military-aware counselling. They insisted that it be slightly away from our Veterans Affairs, so we're connected but separate to the Veterans Affairs Department. 
But the biggest thing about our service is we have a whole heap of ADF lived experience. So veterans, peer workers are right through our organisation. And in fact, it's our peer workers who do a lot of our suicide prevention training. People who can actually talk the talk, veterans helping veterans. And in Australia, we're really lucky. The Vietnam veterans fought for this. 30 years on, we still have a service that, you know, it's free and it's for the veteran and the family. Because in fact, the biggest reason we see people in the service, the reason they come through the door is family issues and relationship issues, just like Chris said. You then use that to build the trust for someone to talk about their trauma history or the other events that happen during service. It makes absolute sense that people who've been there would be able to then give peer support. I know, Chris, you're a trainer as well. It would make a world of difference to have a room of current or ex-service people seeing someone who they can relate to, their colleague, their peer, someone else who wears that uniform with pride rather than, you know, I could go and do the same training if I'm, if I'm trained to do that training. But to be mm-hmm. able to stand with your peers, you must get such a good reception to the fact that you're actually helping them with those skills that they need, but you've been in the same place and are in the same place. Right. Right, right, right. Um, And so talk to me about your specific programs. So the work that you do for Living Works, Chris, you told us a bit earlier about the volume of people that you've trained, but is that also available to families and communities of service people and veterans? Absolutely. So when we offer our training, we do not turn anyone away. Anybody can come into our classes. In fact, we actually find that we have better classes as integrated as they are. I mean, we've had on a regular basis, we'll have, so obviously we're all in cities whenever we're teaching and we're participating. So in the class, you may have, you know, enlisted you'll have officers, you'll have physicians, you'll have teachers, you have moms, dads, children, you know, I say children, you know, young twenties, you know, late teens. So you'll have a broad spectrum in the class. And so then when you break out into the, the work groups, small groups, it really uh, opens everyone's eyes, you know, opens the service member's eyes. It opens the, the family member's eyes. And of course, we try to, as much as possible, keep you know, the same families into different groups as much as possible. But uh, I've never had uh, a class yet that, as, let me back up. Sometimes our classes, people are voluntold to go to the classes, you know, in the military. You know, we need uh, to have our class, so we'll ask class to be filled up, and they'll send folks to the class. And so you have people that are voluntold. I've never had a class that, even with folks that don't really want to be there in the beginning, they don't leave the second day being having their eyes open and being much more aware of the issue. In fact, a lot of times they will say, "I did not realize so many other people were struggling." Also, and so it does at the end of the second day, lend itself to, even though they didn't want it there, now they see the importance of having the training and now they are actually more likely to go get help. So even though we're training them to be caregivers, uh, we're also helping them take care of themselves, which is an important part, obviously, of the training is self-care. And so, yeah, having that broad spectrum of of the, the, having the uh, civil community and having our community partners uh, so our trainers are shared so that are, you may have a military trainer, a civilian trainer, a trainer from the VA, a trainer from a peer support group. And then obviously the, the attendees are a broad spectrum. So that's, I feel, is creating the energy in our program 
when I first started, because we didn't have these partnerships, or we didn't actually, we didn't use them to their best of, you know, or more efficient uh, capability, we would fight to try to get, you know, eight people in a class, you know, eight to 12 people in a class. But now that we have these community partnerships, each class is overflowing where they're feeding into the next class. So we always have 30 people in the, in the class. And that just lends itself to a better learning environment and also a better teaching environment for the, for the instructors. So, you know, it's just, and now it's just taking a life of its own. Now we have people wanting to come into the class instead of us begging people to come to the class to be trained. So I love that. You've gone from voluntold to um, a waiting list. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, it's really good too that you have a mix of those roles because it must be a nice side benefit. As you say, you actually are teaching people to be the help giver, but also they learn a bit more about self-care. But also by having the different experiences in the room, it can also build that community and family understanding. So a really, really powerful side benefit of the training. Yep. Absolutely. Um, Steph, what about the open arms experience? So tell us a bit more about the programs you've been running and the types of people that would come along to that training. Very similar to what Chris said, we started probably with a much more military-focused grouping, but in fact, it is hard to get enough people initially to your groups. But over time, we also now do community joint groups and we don't turn anyone away. So we say that anyone in the veteran community willing to support a veteran can come and do one of our groups with us or can do the suicide prevention training that we offer mainly because in reality the issue is when someone's in crisis there's a slight tendency for people to want to get nervous with that and when someone's in crisis they merely want to give them to a doctor but the truth of the matter is when someone actually is going through a really tough time of their life the healthcare system can only provide a slice of the support. It's got to be the community around them that actually helps them over the next few months, you know, and maybe sometimes years to actually deal with what they're going through. So it's really important that we have a network of people who are trained. Quite recently, I was working with a group of veterans down in South Australia, and they're in a small community town, and they sort of said to us, we'd helped with the crisis support late on a Friday afternoon, they'd run through to us and said, can you help with this person? So we end up on the phone supporting them because we always do. We always support someone to support someone. But then the following week we said, right, we can run some training so that when the next crisis happens, you guys are more confident. And we've got now a whole heap of people with their hands up looking forward to doing the assist course because they realise that they need to have the skills to just have the conversations and to have the ongoing conversations. It's not just the day that the crisis happens. It's actually being that mate, you know, for the next week, for the next month and over the next couple of years for each other. And what they were saying to me is they just want the confidence to be able to intervene. So we've now got a, a group getting ready to go. I think in this COVID environment in particular, what has been really great is we've introduced recently the ASSIST, the Live and Work Start program, the one hour online. So we had a lot of people who were lined up to do a face-to-face -face training with us. But because of community restrictions, the fact that there's actually an online option has been really good. So over time, we've been working on a, I think it's great to have a continuum of support. You want people to be able to, if they're worried tomorrow about someone, get online and do something like start. 
And then once you've actually done your start program, that can also give you the confidence then to say, okay, I need to take two days to go and do the assist. And for me, the strength of the programs, what we've actually found, whether it was service personnel getting ready to go overseas or whether it's a veteran in a small country town up in the back of North Queensland, it's about having the confidence to actually say, are you thinking of suicide? Are you thinking of taking your own life? Myself, as someone who asked that question a lot in counselling, even I found on certain days it was a hard question to ask. Even I found myself dancing around it and saying things like, oh, you know, are you, are you thinking of harming yourself? But the real question is, you know, you don't put the idea in someone's head. If they're thinking about it, if they hear the words, they're going to talk to you then about it. You know, if I actually actually say the question, yes, they realise that, they're, you know, it takes down the stigma and they know that there's someone there willing to listen. So I suppose for us the program has been this ever-expanding circle of how do we actually make sure the service personnel are actually trained and they get a lot of that in the military, but then how do we actually make sure the families around the service personnel actually have access and even more importantly how do we make sure that the communities that can actually assist actually also can get access to the training and I think the the strength of the program at the moment is the fact that you know you can do an hour online you can do a half day if that's what the time you've got or you can you know when you're ready you can do the full two-day program and actually learn how to say and practice the hard questions. Thanks, Steph. I think it's important to realise that, as you're saying, there's different levels of readiness and different ways of learning for people. So people might want to get started on the online course, particularly your area, Chris, where there's such a volume and diversity of locations and geography. Perhaps people don't have their usual training grounds close to them, so they could start with an online course. What I wanted to talk about next is just thinking about your work over the past decades but in terms of mental well-being and that human connection and you know getting to the place where you are today where suicide prevention is embedded in your organizations and communities is if you could think about one sort of moment or approach that made you most proud or that really sticks with you over the years when it comes to suicide prevention work I know I was actually doing a bit of reading about both of you thank you to the internet these days and I was really struck by something that you said Chris when you said it's not a career ender to get help, if you're hurt physically, we want you to get help. If you're hurt mentally, same goes. There's no such thing as a perfect soldier out there. We all have struggles. And that really resonated with me because I think of people who are in the defense and military as just the toughest, the strongest, you know, get through everything. But just because you're technically the toughest person in the room and out there protecting us, it doesn't mean that you don't have your struggles as well and we're all human beings, uniform or not. So I was just thinking, is there something in your careers that's stuck with you in terms of mental health and suicide prevention? Who'd like to take that one first? Stephanie? <laughs> um, that's a big question. Look, the one that immediately comes to mind for me is 
where we had a young medic who actually on operations, it's a t in fact, the toughest time to say that you have a problem is actually when you're on ops because the last thing you want to do is be sent home and you're really worried all the time that you'll let your team down. Now, she had had a, a series of really, really tough moments where we'd lost a few people and she put her hand up and actually asked for help. But the moment for me was, and she got that help and she stayed in theatre a bit longer, but eventually decided for her own well-being to come home. She continued in the military and it was probably five years later, I'm sitting in a swimming pool on a military base and she walks up and she's been promoted and she puts in my arms this little baby and she said, you know, potentially if I hadn't got that help, we wouldn't be sitting here today with this little one with me. And it was like the best moment ever because she was still in the military. She was still doing well and she had this little baby. And, you know, and she'd gone through that moment in her life where just, it just, she, she'd lost hope and then she got it back. And because of that, she went on. And so for me, that was like, you know, for me, it, it makes what you do worthwhile, that, those sorts of moments. It really does. And to see it over that long term, because what you've both been saying is that it's not about a struggle or a day or things like that. It's about the support over a long period of time. So it's great to hear that she felt comfortable asking for help for one and that the support was in place and could continue serving and, and have a thriving family. And not to say that in tomorrow or in five years time, she won't have to ask for help again, but she knows that she was able to get that result from doing that. So I would hope would be just as comfortable asking again, if not more comfortable. Thanks, Steph. And Chris, what about you? So whenever I came in in 88, we didn't have a suicide prevention program. We didn't have we did suicide prevention program manager. Uh, living Works was out there, but we didn't know about Living Works. We didn't know about assist. We had uh, behavioral health, right? We had doctors, but we didn't have a way to train folks. One, listen, because in the military, we don't do a great job listening sometimes. We're trained to make decisions. We're trained to be fixers, right? So somebody back in the day would tell us, let's say that they did tell us that they were suicide. To be honest, they wouldn't do that a lot of times back then because they were afraid of their career. But let's say they did. In 1988, somebody came up and told me that uh, they wanted to commit suicide. Because of who I am and because how I, how we are trained in the military, I would fix that situation. I would find them someone to go talk to, probably, you know, the on-duty psychiatrist, or I would take them maybe to the hospital and help. And, you know, that's, I, but I wouldn't listen to them. They would tell me that they were hurting and that I'd find a, a way to fix what's the problem. What today I have learned through training is the best thing we could do for somebody who is hurting is to listen to them. trusted me to say that they want to die by suicide. So the best thing to do for them is to listen to them. And by listening to them, I can, I can connect with them. And then after all that, then I can help them find the resource that's best for them. Not everyone wants to talk to a, a chaplain. Not everybody wants to talk to a doctor. Not everybody wants to go see, you know, a psychiatrist or a social worker. So, you know, through the years, I've seen the progression from the 80s, 90s, the 2000s, or into 220, which is a, a large spectrum to look at. Whenever I was trained, I was trained in uh, 2015 to be a trainer. 
Uh, Jerry Dooley was our trainer, and he told me that the training that they were providing that day, that week, was just the beginning, and that the few uh, first courses that we teach, that actually is a continuation of our training. And it was probably after my, my third or fourth training, somebody, after the class was over, they went home. Uh, after they went home, they called and said that before the training, we were having thoughts of suicide. But then after we went through the training, and actually all told, they were said, you know, they needed 10 people from the unit. They were one of the 10 people that were sent to the unit. Uh, they went home after the training, and instead of going through the decision to ending their life, they made the decision to go get help. And they made a, they made it a point to give me a, a call and tell me that it worked. That going and talking with someone helped them get through that time where they were, you know, thinking that they didn't have any other choice to deal with what they were dealing with. That they were able to get to the care that they needed, and so. To be honest, that person would have told me, you know, if I would have met that person 30 years earlier and, you know, I would have basically imposed my own safety plan upon them, you know, they would not have been heard and they might not have survived the thoughts of suicide. And so, and that, you know, I could do this all day long, tell you the success stories, not going to do that because we don't have that much time. But that's just one example of, of how this training works. And how far we've come, you know, since, you know, the you know, 80 rifers came in to what we have today, we do have very robust programs worldwide, right? So it's not just in one part of the world, but it's definitely a different environment. Jennifer Butler, uh, director for the Office of Suicide Prevention in the Department of Mental Health, and she said this, she says, now is the best time to a mental health condition. And look back up what she, what she uh, explained to me. If you were struggling with thoughts of suicide or any kind of behavioral health problems, today is the best day to have that because there are so many avenues to get help that you literally cannot take a turn left or right without running into someone who is a helper. Like I said, there are thousands of folks trained and assist. But there's also many other suicide prevention programs out there, and we support one another. It's not a competition, right? It's a very loving, open, accepting environment to be in today versus, you know, many years ago. So I think that was the best time to be alive. That's fantastic. Thank you so much. Um, That's all the questions I have for you. Is there anything that you'd like to add before we finish up today? I just want to reinforce, I think Chris just summed that up beautifully, that the bottom line is um, it's about listening. It's about, you know, having the confidence to actually listen that too many times we uh, quickly wanted to, in the past, move someone onto, you know, the medical support system when in reality they've talked to you because they want you to listen, you know, and the biggest thing we can all do is just take the time to listen when someone's asking for help. You know, and that's step one, you know, and then you can start thinking about the referral pathways, which are also important, but listening is step one. Absolutely. I just love being able to talk to both of you about the two different jurisdictions and so many similarities in terms of your backgrounds and active service and then now working with current service people and veterans and the amount of insight you have in terms of the peer support 
that you're able to encourage for people and really building on the strengths because it's such an impressive profession to be in and such um, one where we have such admiration for the strengths and skills and being able to apply those same strengths into your day-to-day life living with your families and within communities I think is a great aspiration to have and one that you're doing a great job helping people to come to fruition so thank you so much to both of you thank you thanks Kim thanks Chris Um, is there anything else you'd like to add Chris I mean, not really. I think we did cover it. I mean, if I had anything else to add, it would be when you're looking, when you're thinking about a veteran, you know, people have in their minds, they're not going to see the video, but I'm an old man. I have the gray hair and I am really kind of the picture of what somebody thinks of whenever they think of a veteran. However, in today's world, and the reality is Today's veteran is really the the middle 20 to early 30-year-old. And when you think about somebody who's, let's just say 26, just for argument's sake, and they've been in the military um, nine years, they could have been deployed three or four times into combat. And then they're back home and they try to meld themselves back into a society that does not know how to, to absorb them. And so if the listeners to this, if they have any one takeaway would be, to have patience with someone who they quite don't understand what makes them different or why, you know, they may be hard to deal with is to have a little bit of patience with them and just to love them and to be accepting as possible. Because even though they look like what a veteran, you know, the, the poster boy uh, or woman to think about what a veteran is, it might just be that, that young, you know, 20 something year old that's just struggling, that won't ask for help, but maybe you're the one person that can impact their life. And to just be as open as you can with them, recognizing the behavioral changes in them, and letting them know that you've noticed something different in them. And then that hopefully be the step, yeah, the step that they need to actually open up and, and ask for help. So just something I could think of. That's fantastic. Thanks, Chris. I think we can all help to push aside the preconceived idea of what a veteran may look like or feel like in terms of age and demographic. And I think what you say in relation to just loving and understanding and you don't know what someone's feeling or thinking on the inside and the context of their life as you pass them in the street. So I think that's something we can learn about every human being and particularly veterans. Absolutely. Thank you again for joining us today. I really appreciate talking to you. I wish we could talk for longer, but um, I know you've both got a lot to do, so I won't keep you any longer. But um, we really appreciate you sharing your experience and appreciate the relationship with Living Works and the effort that you go to every day to make more training available to the people who need it so that we can support active and uh, retired personnel. One tiny piece that goes to what Chris just said about being accepting of everyone. I think that anyone who works in the area of suicide prevention also needs to realise that there are times when people will die by suicide and that we need to extend that love and support to the families and those who have tried to help that person. So there are those times when despite everything we do, 
the person makes a choice we wish they hadn't and that in suicide prevention it's really super important we often don't talk to the families once there's been a suicide it's really tough on mates and what we do see is that there are clusters that one suicide can lead to more and I think the next step always is is when we do lose someone that it's super important that we also everything we've said about listening everything we've said about reaching out and connecting happens to the family happens to the mates so that we don't then actually see them you know a little cluster form so it's so important that in this space that we are completely accepting you know sometimes people will make a choice we don't want you know in order to make sure that doesn't spread we have to be that next step of acceptance too and break down the stigmas around people where there has been a death by suicide that's a really good point. Thank you so much, Steph. That's something I think we all need to take on board. And in terms of grief and loss and those experiences, having more compassion and understanding and not shying away from it. I think yep. both of you are doing a great job in doing that. And um, yes, thank you. Thank you for all that you're doing. If you've enjoyed this episode, we'd love you to subscribe on the usual channels. Write a five-star review and most importantly, share it with your family, friends and colleagues on social media, tagging Living Works. This podcast is brought to you by Living Works, a network of local suicide first aid trainers in your community and communities around the world. Visit livingworks.net to find out how you can play your part in suicide prevention. A reminder that if this episode has brought up tough emotions for you, talk to a trusted family member, friend or local support service about how you're feeling. Visit livingworks.net and click on Find Safety for International Crisis Services. We are there to help you.